Nehemiah chapter 4. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what, do those feeble, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring those stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. After I had looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work. From that day on, Half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let every man and his helper Stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. Thank you very much. Do please get your Bibles open there. What an encouragement it was to hear from Zana earlier on. Wasn't that fantastic? 
Hi, Phil. I, I, my, um, as Jerry was saying earlier on, I had an interesting journey here. My train was cancelled. My next train, my ticket wasn't valid for. The train I did get was late. I had uh, 18 minutes to cross London. The, uh, I then got a train. The car machine didn't work, so no water, no food. Uh, the air conditioning wasn't working. There were no seats. And I feel it was worth it just to hear that testimony. Praise God. Praise God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and for this meeting together today. And our prayer now is that you would give me faithfulness and clarity as I speak and give all of us uh, that sense of humility that's proper as we sit under your word and attention as we uh, devote ourselves to it. Please, would your spirit be speaking through your word today? Amen. Now, we began this morning by talking about someone who really was a lion of a leader. And we ended, do you remember, with that reflection on the lion of a leader, uh, the lion of Judah, the Lord Jesus himself. But uh, you don't need reminding, I'm sure, there is another lion out there. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter writes, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. It's a striking image, isn't it? That picture of Satan, the lion. You might think it's even a bit melodramatic. Come on, a lion waiting to, to, to pounce on us at any moment. That's what the Christian life is really like, really? But if you've lived your life seeking to champion the cause of Christ for any length of time, and you've been quite intentional about that, you'll know exactly what Peter is talking about there. You'll know that it's nothing less than the truth. A life lived for Christ is a life facing adversity, opposition, for some, outright assault. It is a dangerous business. You don't have to look very far in the world around to spot contemporary illustrations of that, from Nigeria to India to Eritrea to Indonesia. Christian brothers and sisters are losing their livelihoods and indeed their lives for their allegiance to Jesus. At the top of the uh, list currently, that's the top 50 uh, places where it's hardest to live as a Christian. The top of the list at the moment are North Korea, Somalia and Yemen. In North Korea, anyone discovered in possession of a Bible is punished. Uh, speaking of Jesus or gathering as a church, gets you sent to a labor camp, interrogated under torture to incriminate others, or just killed on the spot, and your family sharing your faith with you. It is unspeakably horrific for our Christian brothers and sisters in North Korea. Even in free countries like here in the UK, people are losing jobs, churches are losing meeting places, discrimination is becoming more widespread. But if you want to see a biblical example of what that looks like in real life, you could do worse than read this very book 
that we are giving ourselves to during the course of today, the book of Nehemiah. Now, you might uh, think, well, that's potentially a surprising tip. Um, remember, the date stamp from the first verse, we're in 445 BC, before Christ. This is where to learn how to live for Christ. It's centuries before the baby Jesus is even born, this book. How could this possibly relate to the opposition that comes with standing for Jesus? Well, let me, uh, let me explain. When we read of Nehemiah setting about building the walls of Jerusalem, what he was doing was not so very different from what we are doing today. And it's crucial that we remember that as we read Old Testament books like Nehemiah. When you and I speak about Jesus to the people around us, what are we doing there? We are advancing the kingdom of God in a way that's appropriate to our age. We have a gospel message. We want to make sure it gets heard because in God's providence, when people hear that gospel message spoken, that's how the kingdom makes its gains. But here's the thing. When Nehemiah and his peers turned their energies to rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, they were doing just the same thing. They were advancing the kingdom of God in a way appropriate to their age. So you think for a moment about what those walls actually stood for. Rebuilding those walls meant restoring the identity of God's people, setting them apart from the nations around as God decreed they should be. The new walls meant security for God's people, allowing them to get on and live and multiply and practice their faith without fear of their enemies as God had decreed should be the case. And those new walls also meant Proclaiming the majesty of God himself. The city of Jerusalem was meant to exist for his glory. Establishing identity, maintaining security, proclaiming the majesty of God. Building those walls meant advancing the kingdom of God. Making gains for the king and his realm and his people. And that being the case, opposition was never going to be far away, was it? As we look at the story together, the character of Nehemiah, the challenges that he faced, the group around him, the evasive actions that he took, all those things. I think what there's two major themes developing, and it may be worth just putting them out there from the start. The first is that the danger takes many forms. The second is that the response is always the same. So first, the danger they face takes many forms. Our uh, text for this session is the whole of Nehemiah chapters 3 to 6, but we'll be focusing mostly on chapter 4 that was just read to us there. And chapter 4, you notice there, begins by introducing the arch opponent of the rebuilding project. Verse 1. When Samballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. Now, we don't know much about this man, this 
standard for Satan, I suppose, as he is. But he's certainly going to prove an enemy of the people of God and of the kingdom of God. And see how he expresses that opposition. It starts with mockery. So end of verse 1. He ridiculed the Jews. Uh, there he is, verse 2, with his mates shortling away. What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble, burned as they are? And then his chum Tobiah joins in the fun. Verse 3. Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their walls of stones. Yeah, good one, Tobiah. They're loving it, aren't they? Just egging each other on and ridiculing the whole project. Now, I'm sure they know full well that their conversations will leak back to the people of Jerusalem. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. As a bare statement, that has got to be one of the greatest lies ever told, hasn't it? Words can be crushing. When someone puts us down, what do we do? Well, if we're already in a bad place, chances are we will replay those words a thousand times. And each time we will sink a little lower. Do you know that experience? Words can be crushing personally. And they can be crushing spiritually too. When uh, Richard Dawkins or Stephen Fry or Ricky Gervais or whoever it is lob their verbal grenades out there laughing out loud at our Christian convictions, it can feel paralyzing for us, can't it? Or at the very least, we can lose confidence in what we're about. But of course, this kind of mockery is all around us. It's just part and parcel of life for the Christian. And, and, and the reason it's dangerous comes down to what mockery is at base. Think about mockery for a moment. In a sense, what it is, is a conformity generator. Isn't that right? It's a social mechanism where the values and the behavior of the majority or the more powerful are forced upon those who comply, who don't comply with that majority approach until they do give up and start complying. That's, that's how mockery works, isn't it? And, and it does work. People who you might be surprised to see them change, they do doubt themselves. Their convictions are chipped away. Their quirks are rounded off and they begin to change. I don't know if you've heard of the ash conformity experiment. It's 70 years old now, but it's become a bit of a classic in the social psychology world. And it consisted of a simple challenge. It was a straight quiz for eight students at a time. And in the quiz, Solomon Ash simply asked each participant to look at a line and then say in turn, which of three other lines was the same length as the first one? He made it pretty simple. But there was a twist. The whole thing was a setup. Every time he did the experiment, seven of the people in the room were plants. They were in on the whole thing. Uh, and uh, um, only the, the eighth person was a genuine participant. 
But of course, he or she didn't know that. It was all about how the group consensus influenced the person who spoke last. When the first seven, because that's how they did it, when the first seven deliberately said what was clearly one of the wrong answers to a simple, easy question, what would the last person say? And the reality was, after running all sorts of different permutations and so on, 75% of number eights went along with the clearly wrong answer at least once. 50% would go with the obvious wrong answer most of the time. Why? Well, as the report said, in most cases, the students stated that while they knew the rest of the group must be wrong, they did not want to risk facing ridicule. And that's just in a quiz that means nothing, an experiment. In other words, mockery works as a conformity generator because whatever we like to tell ourselves, most people are conformists at heart. But of course, there are circumstances where it doesn't work. And they include the scenario where convictions outstrip conformism. In other words, in in Bible terms, in Christian terms, where God's people have come to terms with their place as exiles and strangers in the world and care more for their master's good opinion and their heavenly inheritance than the opinion of the world and their earthly comforts. Mockery, powerful, but it can be guarded against. Back to the text and see how things escalate when those words don't have the desired effect. The opposition turns into outright hostility. Verse 7, but when Sanballat, Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. In other words, things are stepping up. Words are going to turn into actions. The time has come for violence. They start by planning an ambush of the workers. So verse 11, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. When that fails and the project still goes on, they try an an assassination attempt on the leader. So flip over to chapter 6 and verse 2. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. And all the way through, they're trying to instill terror. So just stay in 6 for the moment. Verse 9, after the implicit threat of reporting Nehemiah as a rebel, we get this. They were all trying to frighten us, says Nehemiah. Verse 13 of chapter 6. An attempt to wrong foot Nehemiah is a, using a, a fake prophet. He had hired, had been hired to intimidate me. Verse 19, uh, even after the 
Water's finished, it still goes on. Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. This is outright hostility, isn't it? These, these enemies see the importance of the rebuilt walls of Jerusalem. They can see it's not just a vanity project. It's a statement about God and his people. And they can't bear it. As I mentioned earlier, though, that's not so different today, is it? We've got um, people in our own church family down south uh, who faced real tangible adversity for speaking about Jesus. At least one person has been to prison for sharing the gospel. We had a couple at a church I used to serve where he had had his face, half his face, blown off by a shotgun. And she had been raped for nothing other than teaching the Bible to those around them. A couple of churches not far from us have been thrown out of the buildings where they meet. There's growing hostility, even violence, even now. And uh, actually, that um, book that our dear sister, who has a future in the bookselling trade, um, has to uh, was 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 uh, mentioning earlier on the Stephen McAlkine book. It's very helpful in thinking through well, what is our response to that going to be. Are we going to withdraw into our own little enclave? Are we going to assimilate and just give up the battle and just let it all mold in? Are we going to go online and start fighting wars and convince ourselves that we're already engaging just because we're kind of keyboarding against whoever it is across the world? Which, which, which of those approaches are we going to take? So I'm not sure that any of those really uh, enable us to engage and see gains for the gospel. But there is another form of opposition that Nehemiah and his people come up against. And uh, sadly, it's nothing to do with those nasty people out there. Much closer to home. The third danger confronting them is their own frailty. Back to chapter 4 and uh, verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said... The strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. They're just exhausted, aren't they? They don't feel they have the capacity for such a project. And not surprising. Apparently, um, Winston Churchill, among various other pursuits to keep him busy, had bricklaying as a hobby of his. He had joined the bricklayers' union and built a very impressive little wall at Chartwell, apparently while smoking a pipe. It was just a kind of bit of relaxation for him. You can't see, unfortunately, that clearly, that picture. But for him, it was just a, oh, just a hobby to clear the mind. I don't think that's how it was in Jerusalem for those who were laboring on those walls. This was a nine-foot thick wall, a military defense that ran for two miles. I'm exhausted just thinking about it. No wonder their strength was failing. They just don't have the capacity. In one case, though, it turns out it's not just a matter of capacity. It's a matter of commitment. Look back uh, just across to chapter 3, um, near the beginning there. And as you skim your eyes down that chapter, you see a whole lot of people 
who are doing a whole lot of work. This bit of the wall was repaired by so-and-so. That bit of the wall was repaired by some other bloke. And a lot of people putting their weight. But there's one exception. Verse 5 of chapter 3. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Too posh to push is, I believe, an expression normally reserved for another area of life. I do have four children. But actually, it gets these guys down to a T. Throwing themselves in, getting their hands dirty with cement was something these well-to-do types saw as just plain beneath them. And so they held back. Lack of capacity, lack of commitment. And then there was lack of consensus, togetherness. Turns out there's division in the ranks. Verse 19 there, do you see? Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Now, physical separation was a problem here, especially when there was an enemy trying to attack while they were building. You want to be close together, side by side. But it's not half as much of a problem as relational division. According to chapter 5, there is some real beef going on here. So verse 1, uh, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Turns out there was a situation of food poverty verse 2, and uh, debt poverty, verse 3. In fact, uh, verse 5, some are having to sell family members into slavery to pay the bills because of the terms of the loans people are having to resort to. It's a mess. People are furious with each other. Nehemiah sets out to fix the situation and sets to set a good example himself. That's the rest of that chapter. But you can see how the the social fabric is disintegrating with all this sort of thing going on. There is tension. There is alienation. There's resentment. It's a great little book that we get our students to read back in Southampton. I'd, I'd recommend it to you if you want to take seriously the reality of how indwelling sin continues to plague us and weaken us. It's called The Enemy within really helpful book about the daily struggle with sin if you want to dig deeper in this area do look out for it it turns out that those uh, that's where one of the great dangers is to be found in their own frailty we are quite weak people aren't we i know we like to pretend that we're not with our sunday smiles even our saturday smiles <laughs> our Facebook posts of perfection. But we know the truth. We're all just pretty weary. We read of Paul saying, I've fought the fight, I've finished the race, but us, we're not sure we have the stomach for that kind of fight or race. Isn't that right? It's tired of it all. So many dangers, so many fronts on which to fight out there, in here, around us, words, actions, feelings. The dangers take, to take many forms for the one who is determined to live and speak 
for Jesus. And yet, the gospel must go on. The kingdom must advance and does advance even in the face of those trials. One of the most moving experiences I had was as a young man. I was working as a short-term mission partner in Peru uh, many years ago. And it was during the days of the Shining Path terrorist movement. They were absolutely horrific uh, movement. They didn't just kill people. They, I, I won't go into what they did, actually, because there were young people in the room. But it, it was, they were awful. Um, and um, uh, in one of my first weeks in Peru, I met somebody who had been a terrorist. Uh, with the Shining Path movement. Uh, but I met him in a church. Amazingly, through the horrific treatment of his family and so on, he had come to Christ and found new life. And he was just actually at the time working up the courage to go and turn himself in, having come to Christ. In my last week in Peru, I met two brothers who had been forced out of their homes in the mountains uh, to live in a shanty town in um, Lima because of the terrorism and had the joy of leading both of them one by one to Christ. And I thought afterwards, here is the perpetrator of violence. Here are the victims of violence. But both of them can lead to situations where Christ becomes their king. The gospel goes on and the kingdom is built. It was an extraordinary, informative and helpful experience for me uh, at a uh, I guess a, a tender time of my own life, a conviction setting time of my own life. There are dangers, things are hard, but the kingdom can go on. I suppose I want to ask you, what, what front are you fighting on at the moment? It may be that you've already begun to just ponder that yourself as I've been speaking as we've been studying this book together, but what, where are you fighting? And particularly, where are you fighting? What's the front on which you're fighting that most threatens to slow the progress of the kingdom in your heart or your words or your patch? Just take 30 seconds of quiet and ask yourself that question. What's the danger you're facing right now as an individual or perhaps as a church that you're part of that's most likely to throw you off course in terms of following the king and speaking for the king. 30 seconds. Well, I hope that wasn't too painful to reflect on. Without um, wanting to push my luck too much further, I wonder if I could ask one further thing of you though which is that you keep that reflection in your mind as we move on to these last minutes. Because here's the thing, the required response, it turns out, to those various dangers is always the same. Whatever front the enemy attacks on, the counterattack strategy doesn't actually vary. Back in chapter four, you, if you look over the chapter again, you can see what Nehemiah and his people do. For a start, they look to God. Do you see that? All that ridicule in verses one through to three, that contempt, that mockery. What's the response? Verse four, 
Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now, I, I don't know how you felt reading that straight away. There. Does it feel like a bit of a mean prayer? Come on, God, let them have their own comeuppance. Here's the thing. When Jesus said, pray for your enemies, I don't think he was saying, pray for their success. No, he's saying, rather than retaliate with your fists, give the situation over to God to deal with. Pray for them. Let him sort it out. That's exactly what Nehemiah does here, isn't it? And it's the same response looking to God when the threats of attack comes, isn't it? Verse 8. Uh, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem, stir up trouble against it. But we, verse 9, prayed to our God. Again, when a little later they, they might have given in to fear. Verse 14. Nehemiah short circuits that. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. How will they get through all these dangers? Verse 20. Our God will fight for us. Even when it's weaknesses that might get the better of them. What does he do? Chapter 6, uh, verse 9, just over the page. I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. They look to God again and again. You cannot miss it. Now, so often we're short-sighted, aren't we? We just see what's immediately in front of us. Can I suggest our instincts might need retraining? At the moment of our peril, we need to find in ourselves an intuitive reaction, which is to change focus and look to God. Remember from earlier this morning, that is where the sufficiency lies. So it's not surprising. That's how Jesus reacted in the face of testing. Do you remember that? It goes into the desert, the start of his ministry. And there it is, the temptation from Satan himself to abandon his mission. Take a route to glory that bypasses the suffering of the cross. What does he do? He renews his conviction by quoting the word of God. Goes into the garden at the end of his earthly ministry. Feels that temptation to escape this suffering, but turns his mind to the plan of God. Not my will, but yours. We look to God. And when he says to us, follow me, part of what he's doing with that call to discipleship is to draw us onto the same path that he took. They look to God. That's not all they do, though, is it? They look to God and they get to work. Uh, we're back in chapter four. Uh, and yes, it's true that they prayed, verses four and five. But then, verse six, they got building. And look what they put into it. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. They went for it. It was all out. Being prayerful did not mean being passive. It's a similar attitude when it comes to the work of defending themselves. So verse 9, we prayed to our God and posted a guard 
day and night to meet this threat. Same thing in the next stage of the building. Yes, uh, verse 15, it was God who, who frustrated the plots of their enemies, but that didn't mean they were going to take it easy. No, still they armed themselves to the teeth. Verse uh, 16, uh, spears, shields, bows, armor. Verse 18, everyone um, uh, with their swords, even while they worked. That's hard. I have done a bit of bricklaying myself in the past, I have to say. It's not just Winston Churchill. And I found it hard enough without any encumbrances at all. I don't know how they did it. Didn't even take their clothes off. Verse 23, must have been a bit of a pong. But still, they stayed battle ready. No point in praying to God if you're not prepared to be at least part of the answer to your own prayer. That is to offer your energies and resources to God to use in giving you what you ask. In fact, um, it, it might be worth my saying that it's often the either or approach that underlies a lot of the pastoral issues that I come up against. Um, from time to time, the reluctantly single person who's prayed and prayed, but it turns out they thought it was just unspiritual to take any proactive steps towards initiating a relationship or positioning themselves so on. The, the, the parent who's always thought if they just did parenting right, their kids would surely just own the faith they'd been taught. It hasn't really properly processed. It's God who calls people into their kingdom and so on. It's either or, isn't it? No, we, we pray and we work with all our heart. We pray and post to God. We look to God and we get to work. We pray and we arm for battle. And what's more, they stand together. That's what chapter three was all about, wasn't it? This roll call of people who get the job done. These are the credits at the end of the movie, as it were. But really, it's a wonderful tribute to people sharing the project. You guys, you guys take the gate. We've got the walls. You do this section. We'll do that one. You do the doors. We'll do the bolts. You do the repairs needed near your section and where you live. We'll do the bit around our area. A job shared, you see, is a job halved. Remember Bob the Builder? Maybe that dates me. <laughs> But here it is, the, the Bob the Builder principle of life. Working together, they get the job done. And they stay working together. In chapter 4, some, verse 12, keep their ear to the ground for intelligence gathering, while others, you see in the next verse, strategize based on that intelligence. When the job turns into two jobs, building and defending, some, at verse 16, get on with the project. They did the work, as Nehemiah says, while others armed themselves to the teeth for the defense. And everyone was to drop everything uh, to go to the assistance of others when the call for help came. Verse 20, whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. We spent a particular phase of our lives waking up each morning to the sounds of my son playing timey kangaroo down sport on the trumpet for 10 minutes before breakfast. 
I have to say, I've not forgotten that phase of our life, but it certainly did get us going in the, in the household. This is what they were called to. Hear the trumpet, get to work. Well, we could go on. But do you see how they operated when faced by the challenge and the danger? They did it together. They stood side by side, shoulder to shoulder. They had each other's backs. Can I ask you something? Um, I don't know your churches at all. Um, so this may not even be a question that's worth asking. But I'll ask it anyway, because I'm here. I've got the microphone. Does that culture describe your church? And in particular, your personal instincts, you, your instincts, in the life of your church? That is, when things get hard, when trouble comes, when challenges show their face, things get tricky. Do you face them together? Do you stand shoulder to shoulder? Do you have each other's backs? And if your answer is, well, I wish it were like that, but it's really not. People disagree. They talk about each other behind their backs. They don't pull their weight. They leave it to, all, to other people and then complain when it's not done right. And If that's something like the answer that's bubbling up in your mind, then remember how cultures begin to change. They begin to change one person at a time. You know that from your own experience, I guess, in small groups and the like. Ever had that experience in a small group where no one really shares properly? It's all just a bit superficial. Prayer requests are all about Aunt Mabel's hip operation or something, and none about the ongoing struggle to be godly in this or that area of life. People just aren't real with each other. So it's so discouraging that. But then one week, one person opens up and makes themselves really vulnerable by sharing honestly. They're effectively saying, I've decided to trust you as a group. And uh, the next week, somebody else, as a result, is emboldened to share the thing that's really going on for them. And little by little, the culture of the group changes. Have you had that experience, seen that in the life of your group? Maybe it's something to pray for. But it's the same with the culture of a church as a whole. It just takes a few people to show what it looks like to stand shoulder to shoulder with others. And the dynamic can begin to change. Maybe you are going to be one of those people. Maybe this person sitting next to you is going to be another. Well, there you go. There's two to start with. Start. Why not look for opportunities to demonstrate what it looks like to stand shoulder to shoulder with others and see if the Lord uses your example to impact others across your church family and eventually the whole church. Because when God's people stand together in the face of challenges, great things can happen. And look what happens here with the building work. Chapter 6 and verse 15, the entire project was done in how many days? 52 days flat. It's unbelievable. And the naysayers are well and truly put in their place. So chapter 6 verse 16 when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. 
They looked to God. They got to work. They stood together. And the kingdom advanced. Remember what those walls meant? The identity of God's people protected. The security of God's people. And glory to God himself. Whatever challenge they faced, whatever difficulty they ran into, it was always the same. They looked to God. They got to work. They stood together. And what a strong pattern that is, isn't it? You know, as a pastor, one of the conversations I quite often happen is with a Christian who's moved to the area and they're looking for a new church. They're visiting church. They want to know, um, want to know about this church. Well, how do we tick? What do we stand for? What's, what's, the, what's the vibe around here? And uh, sometimes that conversation goes on for quite a long time. It's like facing an in-depth interview for the job of being their pastor. Um, quite wearing. But often they just want some reassurance of what we're about. We want to check that we're roughly on the same page. And of course, I'll answer that question in different ways according to what they seem to be after. But one of the ways I quite often answer it is to say something like this. Look, I can give you the paperwork. You can check our doctrinal statement is up to scratch for you. But in a way, you'll know us by what we do, which is really not an awful lot. We try to not do lots of things. There is no church table tennis league. There is no church landscape photography appreciation society. There is no church ministry to the the historical battle reconstruction community of Hampshire. We just try and do a few things well. We pray like crazy. We get God's word out anywhere we can. And we love each other as Jesus loved us. And that's it. That's it. We aim to do those things. And we leave the rest to God. Now, I don't know how well we succeed, but that's what we aspire to. And that, I think, is what we're called to do, not least by the example of these chapters of Nehemiah. We look to God, get to work, we stand together. Satan, that lion prowling around, is never far away. And if we're wise, we'll be ever alert to that desire of his to use any opportunity to devour God's people. But what will that alertness look like? Just this, looking to God, getting to work, standing together. Are you up for that? Are you up for praying? Serious praying, not just for the Lord to be at work in your own life, although please don't neglect that. Pray for him to work through your church as a whole. Are you up for working? Putting your hand to the plow, rolling up your sleeves, using your gifts and energies and resources for building the kingdom. I know your job is demanding. I know your responsibilities are great. I know home life is busy. But are you up for working for the kingdom? And are you up for standing together? Having each other's backs, holding short accounts, giving each other the benefit of the doubt, being quick to cover 
someone else's role, if they're in a bad way or whatever it is, wanting other people's ministries to flourish more than your own. Standing together. Look to God. Get to work. Stand together. And just let the world see what the Lord will accomplish.